So today we turn to uh, a, a mode of doing literary criticism which was extraordinarily widespread in, beginning in the late 70s and into the 80s uh, called the New Historicism. It was uh, it, definable in ways that I'll, that I'll turn to in a minute and, uh, as I say, prevalent to a remarkable degree everywhere. Uh, it began probably at the University of California at Berkeley uh, under the auspices in part of Stephen Greenblatt, whose uh, brief essay you've read for today. Greenblatt and others uh, founded a journal, still one of the most important and influential journals in the field of literary study, called Representations. Uh, always has been, still is, an organ for new historicist thought. Uh, it's a movement which began uh, primarily preoccupied with the early modern period, the so-called Renaissance, the new historicism uh, is in effect responsible for the replacement of the term Renaissance <laughs> with the term uh, early modern. Uh, and uh, its influence, however, quickly did extend to other fields. Um, some fields perhaps more than others. It would be, I think, probably worth a lecture that I'm not going to give to explain why certain fields somehow or another seem to lend themselves more readily to new historicist approaches than others. I think it's fair to say that in addition to the early modern period, the three fields that have been most influenced by the new historicism are the 18th century, British Romanticism, uh, and Americanist studies uh, from the uh, late colonial through the Republican period, uh, uh, the age, the emergence of print culture, the emergence of the public sphere uh, as a medium of influence and the distribution of knowledge uh, in the United States has been uh, very fruitfully studied from New historicist points of view. So those are the fields that are that are most directly influenced uh, by this approach. Uh, when you read it, when when we discuss Jerome McGann's essay, you'll see how uh, it influences uh, romantic studies. Uh, now the new historicism um, is was, and this probably accounts for its remarkable popularity and influence. Uh, in the period roughly from the late 70s through the early 90s, the new historicism was a response to an increasing sense of ethical failure in the isolation of the text as it was allegedly practiced in certain forms of literary study beginning with the New Criticism, through the period of Deconstruction, uh, the recondite uh, discourse of Lacan and others in psychoanalysis, there was a feeling widespread among scholars, especially younger scholars, that somehow or another, uh, especially in response to pressing uh, concerns, uh, sort of post-Vietnam concerns with globalization, concerns with the distribution of power uh, uh, and, um, uh, and global capital, uh, all of these concerns um, uh, inspired what one can only call a guilt complex in uh, academic literary scholarship and led to a return to history. Uh, it was felt that um, that a kind of ethical tipping point had been arrived at uh, and that the uh, modes of analysis that had been flourishing um, needed to be superseded by modes of analysis in which uh, history and the political implications of what one was doing uh, became prominent and central. Uh, I have to say that uh, in debates of this kind there's always a considerable amount of hot air perhaps on both sides. Uh, in many ways it's not the case that the so-called isolated approaches really were isolated. Uh, deconstruction in its second generation uh, wrote perpetually about history uh, and undertook to orient uh, the techniques of deconstruction to an understanding of history, uh, just to give one example. And the new historicism, on the other hand, um, evinced a preoccupation with 
issues of form and textual integrity that uh, certainly followed from the disciplines, the approaches that preceded them, uh, and also to a large degree, and this is of course true of a good many other approaches that we're about uh, to investigate, approaches based in questions of identity, also to a large degree appropriated the language of the generation of the deconstructionists, and to a certain extent certain underlying structuralist ideas having to do with the binary, binary relationship between self and other, binary relationships among uh, uh, social entities uh, as opposed to linguistic entities, but still, as I say, inheriting uh, the essentially inheriting the structure of thought of preceding approaches. So, as I say, it was in an atmosphere, in a polemical atmosphere, and at a moment of uh, widespread self-doubt in uh, the academic literary profession that the new historicism came into its own. A response, as I say, to the isolation of the text by certain techniques and approaches to it. Now, very quickly, the method of new historical analysis uh, fell into a pattern, a very engaging one, one that's wonderfully exemplified by the brief um, introduction of Greenblatt that, is, uh, that, that, that I've asked you to read, a pattern of beginning with an anecdote. Uh, often uh, rather far afield, at least apparently rather far afield, from the literary issues that are eventually turned to uh, in the argument of a given essay. Uh, a dusty miller was walking down the road uh, thinking about nothing in particular when he encountered a bailiff, you know, uh, and then certain legal issues arise, uh, and uh, somehow or another the next thing you know we're talking about King Lear. Uh, this uh, rather marvelous um, oblique way into uh, literary topics was um, owing to uh, the brilliance in handling it of Greenblatt in particular and Louis Montrose and some of his colleagues. This, uh, this technique um, became a kind of a hallmark of the new historicism. In the long run, of course, uh, it was easy enough uh, to parody it, and it has been <laughs> subjected to parody, uh, and in a certain sense has uh, been modified and chastened by the prevalence of parody. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I think um, shows you something about the way new, new historicist thinking works. It is the new historicism is interested following Foucault, and Foucault is the primary interest on the new historicism. I won't say as much uh, about this today as I might feel obliged to say if I weren't soon be going to return to Foucault in the context of gender studies uh, when we take up Foucault and Judith Butler together. But I will say briefly that Foucault's writing, especially his later writing, is about the pervasiveness, the circulation through social orders of what he calls power. Now power is not just, or in many cases in Foucault not even primarily, the power of vested authorities, the power of violence, uh, the power of tyranny from above. Power in Foucault, though it can be those things and frequently is, is much more pervasively and also insidiously the way in which knowledge circulates in a culture. That is to say, the way in which what we think, what we think that it is appropriate to think, uh, acceptable thinking, is distributed by largely unseen forces in a social network or social system. Power, in other words, in Foucault is in a certain sense knowledge, or to put it another way, it is the explanation of how certain forms of knowledge come to exist, knowledge by the way, not necessarily of something that's true, <laughs> certain forms of knowledge come to exist in certain places. So all of this is uh, central to the work of Foucault and is carried over by the new historicists. Hence the interest for them of the anecdote. Start as far afield as you can imaginably start 
from what you will finally be talking about, which is probably some textual or thematic issue in, in Shakespeare or in the Elizabethan mask or whatever the case may be, start as far afield as you possibly can from that precisely in order to show the pervasiveness of a certain kind of thinking, the pervasiveness of a certain social constraint or limitation on freedom. If you can show how pervasive it is, you reinforce and justify the Foucauldian idea that power is, as I've said, uh, uh, an insidious and ubiquitous mode of circulating knowledge. So all of this is implicit, sometimes explicit, in new historicist approaches to what they to what they do. So, as I've said, Foucault is the crucial antecedent, uh, and of course, when it's a question of Foucault, literature, as we want to conceive of it, perhaps generically or as a particular kind of utterance as opposed to other kinds, does tend to collapse back into the broader or more general notion of discourse, uh, because it's discourse, it's by means of discourse that power circulates knowledge. Uh, once again, you know, despite the fact that historicism wants to return us to the real world, it nevertheless acknowledges that that return is language bound. It is by means of language that the real world uh, uh, shapes itself. That's why, for the new historicist, and we will, and, and by this means, I'll turn in a moment to the marvelous anecdote with which Greenblatt begins the brief essay that I've asked you to read. That's why the new historicist lays such, in, such intense emphasis on the idea that the relationship between discourse, call it literature if you like, you might as well, uh, the relationship between history and discourse is reciprocal. Yes, history conditions what literature can say in a given epoch. History is an important way of understanding uh, the valency of certain kinds of utterance at certain kinds. In other words, history is as it's traditionally thought to be by the old historicism, and I'll get to that in a minute. History is a background to discourse or literature. But by the same token, there is an agency, that is to say, a capacity to circulate power in discourse in turn. Call it literature. I am Richard II, know you not that, says Queen Elizabeth, when at the time of the threatened Essex uprising, she gets wind of the fact that Richard II is being performed, as she believes, in the public streets and in private houses. In other words, wherever there's sedition, wherever there are people who want to overthrow her and replace her with the Earl of Essex, the pretender to the throne, Richard II is being performed. Well, now this is terrifying to Queen Elizabeth because she knows, she's a supporter of the theatre, she knows that Richard II is about a king who has many virtues, but a certain weakness, political weakness and also weakness of temperament, the kind of weakness that makes him you know, sit upon the ground and tell sad tales about the death of kings, you know, that kind of weakness, who is then usurped by Bolingbroke who became Henry IV, uh, introducing a whole new uh, dynasty uh, and, 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 and focus of, of the royal family in England. Queen, Queen Elizabeth says they're staging this play because they're trying to compare me with Richard II in preparation for deposing me, and who knows what else they might do to me. So everything, you know, is th this is a matter of great concern. In other words, literature, I mean, Frederick Jameson says history hurts. 
literature hurts too. <laughs> literature, in other words, has a discursive agency that affects history every bit as much as history affects literature. Literature out there, theater especially if it escapes the confines of the playhouse, because as Greenblatt argues, the playhouse um, has a certain mediatory effect which diffuses the possibilities of sedition. Uh, one views uh, literary representation in the playhouse with a certain objectivity perhaps <coughs> that is that is absent altogether when interested parties take up the same text and stage it precisely for the purpose of fomenting rebellion. Um, and so uh, literature, especially when, Kate, when, when escaped from its conventional confines, uh, becomes a very, very uh, dangerous or positive influence, depending on your point of view, on the course of history. So the relationship between history and discourse is reciprocal. Now in this, uh, Greenblatt wants to argue very with, with a tremendous amount of stress and I think effectiveness. In this, uh, the new historicism differs from the old historicism, page 1443 in the right-hand column. John Dover Wilson, a traditional Shakespeare scholar and a very important one, is the spokesperson in Greenblatt's scenario for the old historicism, and so the view I'm about to quote is that of Don John Dover Wilson, a kind of consensus about the relationship between literature and history. Modern historical scholarship, meaning old historicism, has assured Elizabeth <laughs> That she had, this is the right hand column, about two thirds of the way down, has assured Elizabeth <laughs> that she had nothing to worry about. Richard II is not at all subversive, but rather a hymn to Tudor order. The play, far from encouraging thoughts of rebellion, regards the deposition of the legitimate king as a sacrilegious act that drags the country down into an abyss of chaos. That Shakespeare and his audience regarded Bolingbroke as a usurper, declares John Dover Wilson, is incontestable. But in 1601, neither Queen Elizabeth nor the Earl of Essex were so sure. Greenblatt wins. I mean, it's a wonderful example. It's the genius of Greenblatt to choose examples that are so telling and so incontrovertible. We know Queen Elizabeth was scared on this occasion. Um, and it's, which makes it quite simply the case that John Dover Wilson was wrong to suppose that Richard II was no threat to her. It's not, the, it's not at all the point that the, a broad ideological view of Richard II was any different from what Wilson said it was. Perfectly true. Bolingbroke was considered a usurper. It was considered tragic that Richard II was deposed. But that doesn't mean that the text can't be taken over, commandeered, and made subversive. Wilson doesn't acknowledge this because his view of the relationship between history and literature is only that history influences literature, not that the influence can be reciprocal. You see, that's how it is that the new historicism wants to define itself over and against the, the old historicism. If there is a political or ideological consensus about uh, a legitimacy of monarchy, divine right of kings, legitimacy of success and under the sanction of the Church of England, and all the rest of it, all of which is anachronistic when you're thinking about these history plays, if there is this broad consensus, that's it. That's what the play means according to the old historicism. Even though, plainly, you can take the plot of the play and completely invert those values, which is what the Essex faction does in staging it uh, in those places where Queen Elizabeth suspects that it's being staged. Okay, now another way in which the old historicism and the new historicism differ correctly, I think, according to Greenblatt is that in the old historicism there is no question, I'm looking at page 1444, the right-hand column about a third of the way down, in the old historicism there's no question of the, the 
the role of the historian's own subjectivity. It is not thought, says Greenblatt, to be the product of the historian's interpretation. History is just what is. One views it objectively, and that's that. Now, notice here that we're back with Gadamer. Remember that this was Gadamer's accusation of historicism. Its belief, the belief of historicism, what Greenblatt calls the old historicism, that we can bracket out our own historical horizon, that we can eliminate all of our own historical prejudices in order to understand the past objectively in and for itself. This is not the case, said Gadamer, remember. Gadamer said that interpretation must necessarily involve the merger of horizons, the horizon of the other and my own horizon as an interpreter. I cannot bracket out my own subjectivity. Okay, if that's the case, then Gadamer anticipates Greenblatt in saying that the naivety of the old historicism is its supposition that it has no vested interest in what it's talking about. That is to say, its supposition that, he, that it wants history to accord in one way or another with its own preconceptions, but isn't aware of it. The anecdote, again, uh, wonderfully placed in the polemical argument that, after all, John Dover Wilson delivered himself of these opinions about Richard II before a group of scholars in Germany in 1939 is, after all, rather interesting. Hitler is about to be the Bolingbroke of Germany. John Dover Wilson wants his audience to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, stick with vested authority. <laughs> you, know, you have a weak democracy, but it is a democracy. Don't let it get away from you. You know, uh, and, and so he is speaking, um, you know, the horse already having escaped from the barn, in this reassuring way about German politics as a means of sort of reinforcing his own view of the politics of Elizabethan England. But this, Greenblatt supposes, is something about which he has very little self-consciousness. That is to say, he just, he, he, his own interest as of course it should be on this occasion, is in the preservation of vested authority, uh, and his own interest then folds back into his understanding of Elizabethan ideology in such a way that it can conform to that interest. He has, in other words, in short, as we say today, a hidden agenda, and is very little aware of it. Unlike the new historicist who, following Gadamer in this respect, is fully cognizant of the subjective investment that uh, leads to a choice of interest in materials, a way of thinking about those materials, and a means of bringing them to life for us today and into focus. In other words, it's okay for Greenblatt as it was for Gadamer, much to the horror of Edie Hirsch, to find the significance of a text as opposed to the meaning of a text. The significance of the text is that it has uh, certain kinds of power invested in it. Those kinds of power are still of interest to us today, still of relevance to what's going on in our own world. All of this is taken up openly uh, as a matter of self-consciousness by the new historicists uh, in ways that, according to Greenblatt and his colleagues, uh, uh, were not available uh, consciously uh, in the older historicism. Now, the world as the, new, as the new historicism sees it, and after I've said this I'll turn to McGann, the world as the new historicism sees it. Um, is essentially a, 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 a dynamic interplay of power, networks of power, and subversion. That is to say, modes of challenging those networks uh, even within uh, the authoritative texts that generate positions of power. The Elizabethan mask, for example, uh, which stages uh, the relation of court to courtier 
to uh, visitor to hanger-on uh, in wonderfully orchestrated ways um, is a means, because it's kind of polyvocal, is a means of, of containing within its structure elements of subversion, according to the argument that's made about these things. So the same with court ritual itself, the same with the, uh, the uh, happenstance that takes place once a year in early modern England uh, in which the Lord of Misrule uh, is, is, de- is so denominated uh, and ordinary authority is turned on its ear for one day. Queen for a day, uh, as it were, is something that is available to any citizen once a year. Um, and these are all ways of diffusing what they in fact bring into visibility and consciousness, namely the existence, perhaps the inevitable existence, of subversion with respect to structures uh, and circulatory systems of power. And it's this relationship between power and subversion that the new historicism, especially in taking up issues of the early modern period, tends to focus and to specialize in. Now, Jerome McGann is, it's not wholly clear that Jerome McGann has ever really thought of himself as a new historicist. He has been so designated by others, but I think there is one rather important difference in emphasis, at least, between what he's doing and what uh, Greenblatt and his colleagues do in the early modern period. McGann doesn't really so much stress the reciprocity of history and discourse. He is interested in the presence of history, the presence of immediate social and also personal circumstances in the history of a text. His primary concern is with, at least in in this essay, is with textual scholarship. He himself is the uh, editor of the new standard works of Byron. He has also done a standard works of Swinburne, uh, and he has been uh, a vocal and colorful spokesperson of a certain point of view within the recondite debates of textual scholarship, whether textual scholarship ought to be ought, ought, ought to produce a text that's an amalgam of a variety of available manuscripts and printed texts, whether the text it produces ought to be the last and best thoughts of the author, that's the position that McGann seems to be taking uh, in this essay, whether the text, on the contrary, ought to be you know, the first burst of inspiration of the author, uh, all the people who prefer the earliest versions of Wordsworth's prelude, for example, uh, would favor that point of view. Um, in other words, McGann is making a contribution here, at least, to the debates surrounding uh, editing uh, and the production of authoritative scholarly text. It's in that context uh, that the remarks he's making about Keats have to be understood. I think the primary influence on McGann is not so much Foucault then, with this sense of the sort of circulation of power back and forth between history and, liter- and, and literary discourse, as Bakhtin, whom he quotes uh, on pages 18 and 19, or whose influence he cites, I should say rather, uh, in a way that I think does pervade uh, what you encounter in reading uh, what he then goes on to say. Bottom of page 18. What follows, says McGann, is a summary and extrapolation of certain key ideas set forth by the so-called Bakhtin School of Criticism, a small group of Marxist critics from the Soviet Union who made an early attack upon formalist approaches to poetry, just as he began and as the new historicists are themselves in their turn doing. The Bakhtin School's socio-historical method approaches all language utterances, including poems, as phenomena marked with their concrete origins and history. That is to say, phenomena voiced by the material circumstances that produce them. Phenomena, in other words, in which the voice of the sort of romantic solitary individual 
is not really uh, that voice at all, but is rather the polyglossal infusion of a variety of perspectives, including ideological perspectives, shaping uh, that particular utterance, and also, in the, in the case of the textual scholar, uh, shaping which of a variety of manuscripts will be chosen for publication and for central attention in the tradition of the reception of a given text. So all of this uh, uh, McGann uh, takes to be derived from Bakhtin uh, rather than from Foucault. So I do think that's a significant difference between our two authors. Now McGann's most uh, important contribution to the return to history of the 70s and 80s is a book, a, a short book called The Romantic Ideology. And this book, well, what it is is an attack on Romanticism. At least it's an attack on certain widely understood and received ideas about Romanticism, ideas with which, by the way, I don't agree, but this course isn't about me. Uh, the Romantic Ideology is an amalgam of two titles. One of them, is the important early critique of Romanticism by the German poet and sometime Romantic Heinrich Heine called Die Romantische Schule, the Romantic School, uh, in which the um, subjectivity, even solipsism, isolation from social concern uh, and, from, uh, and, and, and from unfolding historical processes of the Romantic poets is emphasized and criticized. And in addition to that, that's, the word, that's where the word romantic comes from in the title of the Romantic Ideology. And the other title that it amalgamates is Marx's book, The German Ideology, which is about many things, but is in particular about lumpen proletariat intellectuals who think uh, with Hegel, still following Hegel, despite the believing themselves to be progressive, who think with Hegel that thought produces material circumstances rather than the other way around. In other words, people in short who are idealists and therefore under this indictment also romantic. And so McGann's title, as I say, cleverly amalgamates these two other titles and sets the agenda uh, for this uh, short book, which is an attack not just on Romanticism, but, but on what he believes to be our continued tendency still to be in Romanticism, still to be Romantic. And there, his particular object of attack is the so-called Yale School, um, who are still under attack in the essay that you've read for today, uh, Paul Demon and Jeffrey Hartman's uh, well-known essay on Keats's To Autumn are singled out for a particular uh, scorn and dispraise. Um, and so, and, and, and all sort of on the grounds that, um, yes, it's all very well to read Romanticism, to come, to come to understand it, even to be fascinated by it, but we can't be romantic. In other words, our reading of Romanticism, if we are to be social animals, politically engaged, invested uh, in the world as a social community, uh, our reading of Romanticism must necessarily be an anti-romantic critique. This is, uh, as I say, still essentially the position taken up, uh, taken up by Bakhtin. I mean, I'm sorry, by McGann. All right, so I've, I've explained the ways in which he differs from uh, Greenblatt in leading more toward Bakhtin than toward Foucault. Um, I've explained that uh, McGann is engaged primarily in talking about issues of textual scholarship in this particular essay, that he defends Keats's last deliberate choices, that he believes the so-called indicator text of 1820 of La Belle dans Saint Merci is Keats's last deliberate choice, uh, as opposed to the 1848 text uh, published uh, by uh, Monckton Milnes uh, in the edition of Keats's poems that he brought out at that time. Now, I think the, that, in, that in the time I, I want to sort of linger over McGann, I do want to say a few things about what he says about Keats. I want to, I, I want to, to emphasize that his general pronouncements about the historicity of texts, about the 
permeation of text by the circumstances of their production, uh, their conditioning by ideological factors, uh, is unimpeachable. Uh, it seems to me that this is a necessary approach, at least to have in mind, if not perhaps necessarily, to emphasize in one's own work of literary scholarship. Uh, the idea that a text just falls from a tree, um, if anybody ever had that idea, by the way, uh, is plainly not a tenable one. Um, and the uh, and the opposite idea that the text that a text is a is emerges from a complex matrix of social and historical circumstances is uh, is certainly a good one. So if one's to criticize again, it's not a question of criticizing his basic pronouncements. It seems to me um, nothing can be said really against them. The trouble is that in the case of McGann, who's a who's a a terrific, prominent Romantic scholar uh, with whom one, I suppose, hesitates to disagree. In the case of McGann, everything he says about the text that he isolates for attention in this essay is simply consistently wrong. I mean, it, it is, I mean, it, it, it's almost as if by compulsion that he says things that are wrong <laughs> about these texts. And I just, and the reason I asked you in my email last night um, to take a look at them if you get a chance is so that, um, is so that these few remarks that I make now um, might um, have some substance. Uh, take, for example, La Belle Dame sans Merci. Uh, in the first place, who says we only read the 1848 text? A scholarly edition, and his main object of, of attack is Jack Stillinger's scholarly edition of Keats. A scholarly edition gives you basically a variorum apparatus. Yeah, maybe it gives you a particular text in bold print, but it gives you the variant text in smaller print, in, the, in a footnote. It, you know, it, it doesn't withhold the variant text from you. It says, it says no, look, there's this too. You know, take your choice. Really, the, the, the atmosphere of a variorum scholarly edition is an atmosphere of take your choice, not a kind of tyrannical uh, imposition on the public of a particular version of the text. Everybody knows the 1820 indicator text. What can ail thee, wretched white, is at least as familiar to me as a Romanticist as what can ail thee, knight at arms, the way in which the 1848 text begins. And frankly, how many people who aren't Romanticists know anything about either text? I mean, what are we talking about here? You know, for <laughs> the, Rom the Romanticists know what's going on. They're not in any way hornswoggled by this historical conspiracy against the 1820 indicator text, and people who aren't Romanticists don't care. That's what, that's what it comes down to. But I mean, if, if, if it's not enough simply to say that, you know, turning to the question which text is better? Well, it's hard to say which text is better. McGann's argument is that the 1820 is better because it's a poem about a guy and a girl who sort of meet and the next thing you know they're having sex and that doesn't turn out so well. Um, in other words, it's about the real world. These things happen. Uh, it's not a romance. Whereas the what can ail the wretched knight, the 1848 version, and all of its uh, other variants, the kisses for and so on. Uh, the 1848 version um, is uh, a kind of unselfconscious, in McGann's view, uh, romance subscribing to certain medieval ideas about women, uh, simultaneously putting them on a pedestal and, and, and fearing at the same time uh, that they're invested with a kind of black magic which, uh, which, which destroys the souls and, and, and dissipates the sap of uh, deserving young gentlemen. Um, all of this you know, is ideologically programmed, according to McGann, in the 1848 version. Why? Because Charles Brown behaved despicably toward women, he didn't like Fanny Braun, uh, and because Monckton Milnes, the actual editor of the 1848 edition, loved pornography and was a big collector of erotica. Uh, so that's why. The 1848 text, with its, uh, with, 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 with its uh, fear of and denigration of women, in contrast to the 1820 text, is superior. Well, 
Two things. First of all, who's to say the 1848 text wasn't Keats's last thoughts? In other words, yes, he was already ill when the Indicator text was published in 1820. It is pretty close to the end of his ability to think clearly about his own work and to worry very much about the forms in which it was published. But at the same time, we don't know when Brown received his version of the text. We can't suppose, as McGann more than half applies, that Brown just sort of sat down and rewrote it. I mean, <laughs> nobody, nobody has ever really said that. And if he didn't rewrite it, then Keats must have given it to him in that form. Who's to say that wasn't his last and best thoughts? Who's to say Keats didn't really want to write a poem of this kind? After all, the title taken from a medieval ballad by Alain Chartier, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, it bears out the, 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 the what can ail the knight in arms version. It's about a Morgan Le Fay type. It's about, I mean, for better or worse, whatever we think of that ideologically, it is about, if the title is right, uh, the kind of woman who is, who is uh, evoked in the 1848 version as opposed to the kind of woman who is evoked in the 1820 version. So the 1848 is simply more consistent with the title. That's one point to be made. But the additional point to be made is that taking advantage of the new historicist acknowledgement that one's own subjectivity, one's own historical horizon is properly in play in thinking about these things, McGann uh, is then able to infuse Keats's text and therefore Keats's intentions with a pleasing political correctness. That is to say, Keats can't possibly have thought in that demeaning way about women. By the way, everything, I mean, I like Keats, but everything in his letters suggests that he did. Uh, Keats, Keats can't possibly have thought in that demeaning way about women. Therefore, the 1820 text is the text that he intended and preferred. Okay, that, of course, makes Keats more consistent with our own standards and our own view of the relations between the sexes, but does it make Keats? Does it, in other words, make sense vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Keats whom we know and, despite his weaknesses and shortcomings, love? Uh, and so there is a great deal, in other words, to be said uh, over against McGann's assertions about this textual issue. Not necessarily in defense of the 1848, but agnostically with respect to the two of them, saying, yeah, we better have both of them. We better put them side by side. We'd better read them together. But if by some fiat the 1820 were somehow subsequently preferred to the 1848, that would be every bit as much uh, of an historical misfortune as the preference, insofar as it has actually existed, of the 1848 for the 1820. Uh, and so I think that's the perspective one wants to take. Now, I was going to talk about um, To Autumn. I'll only say about his reading of To Autumn that McGann, who doesn't seem to like the poem very much, I mean, he likes La Belle Dame Sans Merci, so he makes it politically correct. Uh, he doesn't like To Autumn because he thinks that Autumn was published in collusion with Keats's conservative friends in the poems of 1820, uh, which bowdlerized everything he had to say of a progressive political nature, and he thinks that To Autumn is a big sellout. In other words, that Eight, yes, 1819 happened to be a year of good harvest, and so Keats turns that year of good harvest into something permanent, into a kind of cloud cuckoo land uh, in which you know the, the fruit falls into your basket and the fish jump into your net and, and everything is just perfect. Well, do you think the poem is really like that? You've read the third stanza, which McGann totally ignores. Apart from where are the songs of spring, I, where are they? In other words, he, he, he gives you the opening. But he doesn't give you any sense of the rest of the stanza. For because for him, to autumn is all about the first stanza. For him, Keats seems to identify with the bees who think warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Keats is like a bee, he's all into the sensuous. Well, again, just in terms of historical evidence, this is outmoded by at least 18 
but by at least 18 months, if we consult Keats's letters. He was like that early in his career, but he has had severe misgivings uh, about a point of view which is, uh, which is represented in what he said in an early letter, oh, for a life of sensations rather than thoughts. That's no longer Keats's position when writing to Autumn. Keats's position when writing to Autumn is the position of a guy who has a sore throat, just as his tubercular brother did, who is increasingly afraid that he's going to die soon, and is trying to confront mortality in writing what is, in fact, uh, and I say in fact advisedly, the most perfect lyric ever written in the English language. Which is and which is most certainly not a celebration of you know, uh, sort of wandering around like an aimless bee, thinking that the autumn is perfect, but that autumn is always perfect, uh, and that warm days will never cease, uh, and that everything is just lovely in the garden. It is not that kind of poem, uh, and it's really a travesty of it to suppose that it is simply on the grounds that it was published in the poems 1820 uh, as a kind of sellout. To the establishment uh, under the advice of Keats's conservative friends. All right, so much then um, for McGann's remarks on Keats, which, as I, which I want to say again, you know, in no way impugn or undermine the general validity of the claims that he's making about uh, taking historical circumstances into account. Precisely, we need to take them into account and we need to get them right. <laughs> That's the challenge, of course, of working with historical circumstances. You have to get it right. Uh, and so, uh, with that said, uh, let me turn quickly uh, to a review of Tony uh, from Bakhtin to the New Historicism. I may uh, glide over. Uh, Tony according to Jameson, because we did that at the end of the last lecture. So let me go back to Bakhtin. Uh, you can see the way in which in the structure of Tony the tow truck, uh, the first part of the poem is absolutely saturated with the first person singular. I do this, I do that, I like my job, I am stuck, I, 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 I. Then as you read along through the text, you see that the I disappears, or if it still appears, it's in the middle of a line rather than at the beginning of a line. In other words, the, the I, the subjectivity, the first person singular, the sense of having a unique voice, is gradually subsumed by the sociality of the story as it unfolds. I am no longer I defined as a romantic individual. I am I rather defined as a friend, that is to say, as a person whose relation with otherness is what constitutes his identity, and in that mutuality of friendship the first person singular disappears. What is spoken in Tone of the Tow Truck, in other words, in the long run, is not the voice of individual subjectivity, but the voice of social togetherness, uh, the voice of otherness. According to Yaus, uh, the important thing about Tony the Tow Truck is that it is not the same story as the little engine that could. In other words, in each generation of reception, uh, the aesthetic standards that prevail at a given time are reconsidered uh, and rethought, reshuffled, a new historical horizon, a new aesthetic horizon emerges, uh, and texts are constituted in a different way, much also, as the Russian formalists have said, only with the sense in Yaus of the historical imperative. Little Engine That Could is all about the uh, inversion of power between the little guy and the big guy, so that the little guy helps the big guy, uh, and that is unequivocal, uh, showing as in Isaiah in the Bible that the uh, uh, valleys have been raised and the mountains have been made low. Uh, that's not the way Tony the tow truck works. The little guy himself needs help. He needs the help of another little guy. There is a reciprocity, not dialectically between little and big, but a mutual reinforcement of little by little, uh, and that is the uh, change in aesthetic horizon that one can witness between the little engine that could and Tony the tow truck. In Benjamin, the important thing, as I think we've said, is the idea that the narrator is the apparatus. The humanization of the natural world 
of, I'm sorry, the humanization of a mechanized world through our identification with it is what takes place in Tony the Tow Truck. In other words, all these cars and trucks, all these smiling and frowning houses, uh, of course, have as their common denominator their non-humanity, but the anthropomorphization of the cars and trucks and of the houses constitutes them as the human. They are precisely the human. We see things, in other words, from the point of view of the apparatus. We see, just as the filmgoer sees things from the point of view of the camera, so we see Tony the tow truck from the point of view of the tow truck. Right? And so it's all a and, and what happens? Just as the camera eye point of view <coughs> leaves the, that which is seen, as Benjamin puts it, equipment free, so oddly enough, if we see things from the standpoint of equipment, what we look at is the moral of the story, in other words, the humanity of the story. What we see, in other words, surrounded by all of this equipment is precisely the equipment-free human aspect of reality. So Tony the tow truck works in a way that is consistent with Benjamin's theory of mechanical reproduction. For Adorno, however, the acquiescence of this very figure, the, uh, the, the apparatus of mechanical reproduction, of towing again and again and again, the acquiescence of this very figure in the inequity of class relations, rejected as always by Nito and Speedy, the acquiescence of this figure proves that the apparatus, which Benjamin's theory takes to be independent of the machinations of the culture industry, that the apparatus in turn can be suborned and commandeered by the culture industry for its own purposes. All right, I will skip over Jameson. The old historicism. <coughs> Which, which re simply reconfirms, it, 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 the old historicist reading of Tony, simply reconfirms a status quo in which virtue uh, is clear, vice is clear, uh, and both are uncontested, uh, and nothing changes. In other words, a status quo uh, which reflects uh, a stagnant, existent, unchanging social dynamic. The new historicism a lot of ways of doing this, but let me just conclude by suggesting that if literature influences history, Tony the tow truck might well explain why today we're promoting fuel-efficient cars, uh, why the attack on the gas guzzler and the SUV or minivan, I am too busy, uh, why, the attack, wh wh why the attack on these vehicles is so prevalent in the story, uh, and why, uh, if we read today's headlines, we need to get rid of the Humvee if GM is to prosper, uh, and we need to downsize <coughs> and streamline the available models. The little guy, Tony and Bumpy, <coughs> reaffirm the need uh, for fuel-efficient, smaller uh, vehicles, uh, and you can plainly see that Tony the tow truck is therefore a discourse that produces history. All of this, uh, according to the pre prescription of Tony, is actually happening. All right, thank you very much. Um, one thing that needs to be said about Tony the tow truck is it has no women in it, uh, and that is the issue that we'll be taking up on Thursday. Right. <laughs>